The Dode Fox Podcast. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Dode Fox Podcast. I'm Ronnie, he's Paul, and this is our tribute to the late great Jim McLean. Join the conversation on our socials. We're at Dode Fox Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This week's episode is all about Jim McLean. We'll take you through his career, plus you'll hear from author Neil Forsyth, journalist Craig Miller, and the wonderful United Encyclopedia that is Tom Cairns. Plus, you'll hear clips and stories from games, fans, and former podcast guests. This is our tribute to Jim McLean on episode 83 of the Dode Fox podcast. Hello, I'm Sean Dillon, and you're listening to the Dode Fox podcast. Jim McLean was born in Lark Hall on the 2nd of August, 1937. He, along with his brothers Willie and Tommy, all went on to become professional footballers and managers. After leaving school, Jim served an apprenticeship as a joiner, something he continued to pursue for much of his playing career. Jim was an inside forward with Hamilton Academical and Clyde before joining Dundee in 1965, ironically making his debut in the 5-0 defeat to United on the 11th of September. He moved on to Kilmarnock in 1968 and played alongside his brother Tommy. After making a total of 474 appearances and scoring 170 goals in his career, Jim retired from playing in 1970 and returned to Dundee as a coach in July of that year. He was first team coach up at Dundee for 18 months. In November 1971, Dundee's manager John Prentice announced that he would resign at the end of that year. Many outside observers assumed that Jim would become their manager. But when Jerry Kerr retired as United manager in 1971, after 12 years at Tannadice, the United board offered the position to 34-year-old Jim McLean, who walked down the road and accepted the job as his first managerial role. Tom Cairns tells us about Jim swapping dens for Tannadice. It was a shock. I was gutted when I found out. And, and I found out in a very strange way, because uh, we, we, I thought at that time you played reserve matches say Dundee United and Hearts or at Tynecastle as we were and United Reserves would play at Tannadice the day before or on the afternoon of that game against Hearts and, and it was Hearts who were playing and we knew that Jerry was leaving he'd announced he was leaving but that night before kick-off sitting in what is now called the Jerry Kerr stand the main stand I looked down and in the office with Jerry Kerr you could see it quite clearly basically in the glass boxes in the uh, over the tunnel in there was Jim McLean. Now, it was like getting a skeleton in the pus with a wet fish. It is the person that's taken over because we knew a, a, an appointment was going to be imminent. We, 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 we couldn't believe that it would be Jim McLean who was really a non-entity. And there he was sitting with Jerry Kerr and, and I was gutted. What's going to become of us, I'm thinking to myself. He's, he's, he's nothing special, you know? Jim Mc, and he was young. He was only about 14 years older than I was, right, at that time. He, he, there was players at Tannadice that were older than him. Certainly Dennis Gillespie was older than him. Dennis near the end of his career and, and whatever. Uh, I just, I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. And he watched the reserve match that night and then he went through the next day and he sat with Jerry, but he wasn't taking over. He didn't take over till the Monday. Coincidentally, that was the 6th of December, 1971. Nine years later to the day, he beat Dundee in the League Cup final. It's just strange, strange, strange things that, that go on in, in, in life. But, but Jim took over 
Nobody knew who was going to be the manager. Everybody was guessing names and whatever else. And then Jim was accepted. He was accepted because he was our manager. They lost at Pinecastle and we were two-thirds of the way down the league. There was 18 teams in the league at that time. I don't know that he liked too much of what he saw. Uh, and he gave it a month. His first win was Christmas Day. It was the last time United ever played on Christmas Day, 71. 1-3-2 against Infermann at Tannadice. And uh, after that, in fact, on the New Year's Day, he signed Frankie Coppell. And then he signed Archie Knox. Then he signed Paddy Gardner. Now, these were all time-served players. We didn't know much about Frank Coppell, but he'd been down at Man United. Archie Knox, we knew. <clears throat> I knew him. I knew Archie Knox very slightly. He'd been at Forfar. He was at St Mirren. Signed him. And then Paddy Gardner already won the Scottish Cup. He'd won the Scottish Cup with Dunfermline. He was, he was a good player. He was a good player. And George Fleming. Probably the best of the whole lot, George Fleming. Uh, not appreciated at the time, but so he's he's putting a spine into this team in the first month, maybe first six weeks of his tenure. He put a spine in. He already had Doug Smith, and he, and he you know he had Don Mackay, and he had he had good players. He strengthened us, and he held we held in there. And by the end of the season, we weren't struggling at all. We weren't a fantastic, and we lost some games. Uh, I think Aberdeen the cup. It's horrendous at Tannadice. But generally speaking, he steadied the ship. And I suppose that was what his intent would be when he came there first. Initially, the club's league forum was average, remaining mostly mid-table for the next few years. His first hint of success was leading the club to its first Scottish Cup final in 1974, which they lost to Celtic. It proved an important psychological step in McLean's and the club's development. The success of the cup run was built upon the following season with a finish of fourth place the club's best finish in the Scottish League to date. As the Scottish Leagues were restructured after this season, this position qualified United for the new Premier Division, but they struggled in the first season of the new setup and needed a draw at Ibrox on the final day to avoid relegation, where Dundee were relegated instead. Journalist Craig Miller knows firsthand what Jim was like. He signed for United in 1972. When I was at under-15 level, um, as a schoolboy, I was doing quite well as a footballer. I, be I began to think that I might be just be a professional footballer. One day I was playing for Morgan Academy under 15s in a cup tie. It was at Graham Street on a Saturday morning, um, and I looked up and he was on the sideline. And there's Jim McLean, the Dundee United manager. I had actually quite a good game. And also, the Dundee schoolboys team that I played for, the under 15s, we won the Scottish Cup that year, so we, we were really good. Johnny Holt played, Cammy Fraser. The goalkeeper, Mark McRitchie, went for a trial with Manchester United. There was another guy, John Robbins, he went for a trial at Manchester City. Cammy Fraser, I don't know if you know this, but he signed for United, I'm pretty sure, as an S form. Um, John Holt signed about the same time as me, so that would be 1972. So then it was a case of going up and uh, doing uh, training during the school holidays. And you got to train um, with some of the, the first-team players sometimes. But my first memory was being on the pitch at Tannadice, and it must have been about June, because the pitch was in great condition. It had just recovered from the previous season. And we had this... Uh, it was it was just a, a, like a, a small five-a-side game with the schoolboys and, and Jim. And I... Jim had the ball, and I, I piled into him and tackled him really hard. And I thought, God, I shouldn't have done that. But he just started laughing. He was really, he was actually really great. 
with, with the young lads. That's my memory of it. And there's an old picture that I've put out on Twitter a couple of times where Jim's standing there and, you know, Johnny Holt's there, Graham Payne, Davy Dodds, and he just, he, he's, he's obviously speaking to us. We're all smiling. You know, we'd be saying, oh, what a useless bunch you are, you know, you couldn't, you know, do this, you couldn't do that. Because that's, that's what Jim was like. But I, I was... I was quite lucky with him because he knew my father. Um, he actually came to my dad's funeral in 2008. You know, it's something I won't forget about Jim. Um, he, he liked my father, so I think I might have maybe got less of a hard time uh, than, than some people got. But at that time, United's team was a pretty mature team. Um, you had a lot of um, you know pretty well seasoned professionals. Uh, you know, like. Walter Smith, Archie Knotts were there. Jim Henry was there. Jim Henry was almost a bit of a United legend, but his career kind of fizzled out um, to, to quite an extent. So sometimes you've got to play um, against the guys like, in training, Walter Smith. And I think Archie Knotts might have been at one training session I was at. But you could actually see Jim light Walter Smith as a person, because I remember being in the changing room one day, um, he was joking with why, you know, why this, why that? Whereas there was another guy there, he was a fullback, um, who'd been there for, since Jerry Kerr was there, Jim Cameron. And I remember Jim being quite nasty to him. I thought, oof, I wonder what he did to deserve that, you know? So the, the, there was, there was kind of two sides to Jim's personality as, you know, has been well recorded. I've got a programme here from uh, January the 1st, 1973, and I'm in it. I'm in it as, they obviously had this spot, and it was United's future in their hands. Craig Miller, ha-ha, just as well they got rid of me. It might not have been that good. Um, So there was a wee feature on me, uh, which I remember Dick Donnelly, the great Dick Donnelly, phoned me up at the house and... Uh, did an interview with me, and he, he actually got things wrong because during that year, there was quite a lot in the local press, and even the, the Sunday Express one day, that Rangers were interested in signing me. Um, uh, but they never came to, to sign me, so Jim came along to, to my house and spoke to my father, um, and my father said, well, Craig's wondering if Rangers are going to come in and sign me. He said, right, I'll give them to me, John... And if he doesn't sign by then, he can off. <clears throat> Jim, if it came back, he was quite patient. And I signed for United uh, in May, and uh, you know the training was uh, the training was good. And it was hard. You know, the, a lot's been said about how fit the uh, great Dundee United teams were under Jim McLean, and I remember being sick after training. You know, because it was it was so hard. Um, but uh, the, the, I also remember, you know, Jim's sense of humour. If you were a bit faint-hearted, uh, you might sort of um, uh, buckle under the strain. Because I, I remember particularly one day we were doing these ten-yard sprints. They're called doggies. You go back for, back for, back for, back for, back for, and Jim was there timing them. And at the end of my bit, he said, "Craig." See you. It's not a stopwatch you need. It's a flipping calendar. 
Well, that's when I thought, I well, maybe I'm not to quite make it. And after 18 months, I was also training with um, the amateur team that I played for, Invergowrie, which then became um, Hillside. And I, I went and trained with them more than I did with United. And eventually Jim came back to see my father after 18 months. He said, we're just going to, we're going to let Craig go. So that was it. Um, 18 months with United. But I must say, I'm really proud that I was actually one of the first and of these uh, young guys that uh, Jim brought in. And there were loads of them. There were loads of guys that didn't make it. But if you look at the guys who actually eventually got into the first team, the proportion was incredibly high. And when you think about the normal wastage amongst young players, the, the, the chance of them getting into uh, the first team of any professional club is usually very, very small. But if you look at Payne, Neary, Dodds, Holt, Milne, Malpass, Goff, and you could mention, you know, maybe a couple of others as well, that is an incredibly high proportion of players. And they all played in the same team, you know, it's, it's just remarkable. So not only was he, he was a great tactician, but he his eye for a good player and developing players, coaching them, was just amazing. With foundations laid, he started a coordinated youth policy, which was to produce many fine young players over the two decades which followed. He'd personally visited Ralph Milne, John Holt and Davy Dodds to encourage them to sign for United rather than for Celtic, Aston Villa and rivals Dundee, respectively. In the short term, he used his knowledge of the Scottish scene to buy experienced players who would allow him to reshape both the squad and the style of play in line with his approach to coaching. Neil Forsyth tells us about signing the young players and mixing them with experience. What was interesting with uh, with McLean was that he, he kind of started with kids. He kind of took a long-term view right from the start. So he went to kind of Douglas um, Council Estate and he persuaded a young Ralph Milne to choose United over Celtic. And I think that kind of sums it up really that he he not only knew the best local young players, he knew the ones that everyone else was trying to sign. And he tended to sort of nip it in the head of, head of the others and uh, try and make it more of a personal touch. He always went and did it himself. I remember Ralph Milne talking about how his dad, who was a big United fan, panicked when he heard McLean was coming around and bought an enormous carry-out and laid it out on the on the dining table thinking that that would appeal to McLean, not knowing that Jim was teetotal at the time. And um, I remember Ralph saying that when McLean left, he turned to his dad and went, what the fuck was the carry-out all about? I think he was 12 at the time. Um, so, you know, that kind of, that's a kind of microcosm of it, but he, that, was the, that was the kind of MO. He would just, he would find out who was, who was being hunted and he would go and, persuade them and and he you know he went up to the yeah, the 19th floor of a multi uh, and got uh, John Holt to choose United over Aston Villa went to see Davy Dodds he was at Dens Road Primary um, to choose United over Dundee he, he was all set on, on signing Dundee as a, as a school kid but and then I thought what was really interesting was as well as these 12 13 14 year olds he was also keeping an eye on that age of sort of 19 20 21 boys who just hadn't been picked up by clubs, but they'd gone off and 
kept playing and forged a kind of local reputation. You know, he'd speak to kind of local journalists about who was playing well in the amateur leagues and things, which no manager would be doing would be doing now. Um, and that's how he got you know, Paul Sturrock. He was 18. He was playing in Persia amateur leagues. He just scored 50 goals in the season that United signed him. And uh, Morris Malpass, he was 17, and but he was playing in the kind of Fife men's leagues and sort of cruising it, playing centre mid, I think, at the time. And so he... he he had such a love for youth and he, he was so clever in his recruitment of it. And then he would sort of combine that with just brilliant signings, really smart signings. He did right through his whole career, even towards the end, he made some great signings that then served United well after he after he left. But probably the, the, the biggest ones, as people would know at the time, was uh, Hegarty, who was who was a pretty mediocre um, forward, centre-forward, we got him from Hamilton and he switched him to centre-half. And then Eamon Bannon, who had a brilliant reputation as a youngster but he'd gone down to Chelsea and he just never got a look in and he was sort of rotting in the reserves and McLean um, got him back up the road and then Richard Goff who'd been at Charlton Athletic and the youth team and he was kind of heading back to South Africa but his dad was Scottish and McLean got in touch with him and kind of coaxed him back so there was always that mix of the the youth and the the experience. Hamish McAlpine spent 20 years with United and whatever friction there was between Jim and the goalie he knew he was one of the best around but an argument over how many defenders should be put on the posts at corners even saw Hamish sent home from a tour of Japan in 1979. He joined us on episode 34 to tell us the story. It was, it was quite easy. It was quite easy to follow it. I felt like we were every week. But something, we were on Japan in a pre-season tour um, and we were playing this team. It was meant to be just a team of... Amateurs or whatever it was. I, I, we'll learn later. I think it was a, a Japan under 21 team or something like that. And we all had our set things we did at corner kicks and things. So it was corner kicks and they just kept it in the front post. And I was taking the middle and Holtley would take the front six yard box. George Fleming would be on the front post. Frank would be on the back post. Davey, whatever. And everybody had their jokes that day. And the boy kept hitting it into the front post and the wee boy kept nicking in. They didn't score it off it, but it was it was dangerous, like, you know. So I was wanting Holy to come back a bit nearer the post and then attack the ball out the way rather than having to come in or, or George to go off the post. And it was one of them that were going, I was like, Holy, you come in two yards. It's only a wee bit, it's just a stoop doing. If it's coming in front of the front post, either out back out for a corner or whatever, but you can hump it up the park if it's the other way. So he'd said something at half time about positions and I went no I says I'm seeing what's happening I want Holtley to be in there and attack it out the way and this is after we'd played them went out and had a few beers at night come back we're out training the next day and it was just having a wee kick about and then he put us into the centre circle of the park and was talking about this I said no I'm in here I'm in in charge of this I want him to be there and there you'll do what I fucking tell you you'll do what I fucking tell you I'm going like I says, I'm seeing what's happening. You're you're in the dugout. You're not really seeing what's happening. There's a big gap there. The boy's coming in between it. It's a mixed match, you know. It's, it's to me, it's the done thing. He's I should be organising him. I'm the manager. What I says go. Now you boys, boys are probably too young to remember Freddie Starr. Freddie Star. You're, you're just looking. Ah, ah man, I've heard of Freddie Starr. Paul's got a few years on me. So. Freddie Starr, comedian, right? Yes. Well, he did this. That you can't do it now because it's no PC. This yeah. is what Morris and Holtley are telling me now. You can't do this. He used to come out with a pair of wellies, can they tap turned down in a German hat on? <laughs> and he used to do 
The Hitler, right? <laughs> so I just turned around and goes, and I'm fucking raging by this time. I'm going, see you, all you need is a fucking Hitler hat and a pair of wellies. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking of Freddie Starr. <laughs> oh, steam, beep, 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 coming out the ears, you know. So that was, that was the So then it, it comes down. He said something to George Fleming. George Fleming says, aye, but he, George was agreeing with me. Yeah. We Jim thinks George is agreeing with him. Right. <laughs> oh, fuck, so we're back in the hotel, we're up on the roof of the hotel, lying about, faffing about. Andy Dixon come up and says, Manager just spoke to me, he says, You've got to pack your bags, you're going home. And I went, I'll wait. <laughs> he says, He's adamant, you've just to pack your bags and go home. I says, Well, go back and tell him to come up and tell me he's sell. He'll not do that. Because he can't have it as his fucking banjo. <laughs> He'll not do that. So fucking. And all right, all right. So I goes and packs my bags. And what, boys, what are you doing? I says, getting sent him. I'm like, oh, you're joking. Go and speak to him. I says, no, I'm not be speaking to him. I says, I said that it was, it's what came out my mouth at the time. But I still think I'm there. I should be organising what's three yards for me. Yeah. He's sixty-five yards for the area. Okay. I were right. You're right enough. But I said, well, you go and fucking tell him that. Because they'd be, oh, what's that? You know. so anyway, so. <laughs> the wee Japanese boy who's interpreter and organising the tour he's at the front of me gets my bag and uh, you have to go to the airport and I went yes he says well, why are you going home I says well I had an argument with the manager uh, he's sending me home he goes you're a very fine man he says I don't like the little bastard either he says <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is true. In Jamel, you did. He said, we get to the airport, I just get my bag, and he says, oh, one minute. And he goes, and we'll, we'd all got ASICs, you know, the ASICs trainers yeah. and boots and a whole doll and tracky yeah. bottoms, you know, it was, it was all the best of gear, eh? Oh, I'll give you this. So he gave you an ASICs whole doll with a tracky, trackies in it, trainers, football boots, you know, you take that for me. He says, I like you. He says, <laughs> <laughs> so I had, a, I had a long journey for Japan back home for... On my own. What the hell of a trip that was. His youth policy began to bear fruit as a batch of talented young players began to emerge and United started to prove that they were serious contenders for domestic honours. In December 1979, McLean guided his team to triumph in the League Cup by winning a replayed final against Aberdeen at Dens Park. Paul Sturrock was part of that team. The two cup finals were in the same mode. You had to win the Dundee one, which was fairly important, you know, but... The Aberdeen one was, you know, everybody thought Aberdeen was just going to turn up and run over the top of us. But, uh, you know, to be fair, we, we got, we got the, the, the early goal and that uh, definitely was a benefit. So getting the second one was a real bonus, you know, and the third was a bit of sheer luck. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you make your, you make your luck at times. And to be fair, on the night, we were far superior than Aberdeen. They didn't, it just didn't come at the show. Kirkwood is still down, but that's a good ball to Pettigrew. Still a chance. He's caught. Fourteen minutes gone. Dundee United have taken the lead. Traffic clashes a great ball. Clark is out. Oh, great play by Clark. Clark read it well. Right out of his goal, out of his penalty area. Eddie again. Now Capel to Bannon. Beautifully cultured player, Bannon. 
Holt. Stunnock on the left again. Fleming is inside, and Fleming has done it! McLeish. Now, Stunnock on the break. Roy Fredrick is inside, and he's on the clear. When he takes it off, and own goal. 3 nothing. The break was on by Stunnock. He had pace and drive. Kept his eye on the ball, looked up for Pettigrew, couldn't see him, tried to cut it round, and Willie Muller nudged it away from Clark. And there it goes, the final whistle. United have won the Scottish League Cup. There is Jim McLean, having been near honours so often, and this is United's First major win in their long history. The crowd at Dens, 28,984, was bigger than the one at Hamden on the previous Saturday. And the atmosphere was absolutely fantastic. And United were brilliant. They made a couple of changes, um, but Willie Pettigrew was, like, on fire. He was a, an absolutely brilliant striker, that, and Jim knew his value and brought him in from Motherwell. And that was it. They won their first trophy. And as Jim has said before, that kind of took the pressure off him as a manager, took the pressure off United, because for years and years they hadn't been successful in terms of winning things. And now they had, and they could they could grow from there. But I remember I was, uh, when I worked for Grampian TV, I was looking through the, the footage of that night where they the, had a camera crew on the pitch to see the players celebrating. And... Uh, one of the things I noticed about Jim was he was absolutely doing his nut. He was screaming at photographers who'd gathered in front of the, the guys with the trophy. And it made me feel the same. For God's sake, Jim, relax. You've just actually won something. But you seem to be, you know, really wound up. And that was the thing about Jim. You never felt that it's a recurring feature. You never felt that he really enjoyed his successes as much as he should have done. Um, and certainly in a public way, you know, he always looked like, oh, well, we've won, but we might never do it again, and all that sort of stuff. You know, he seemed to be more of a, a pessimist than an optimist about it. But he, he obviously knew, you know, they were going places. It was the club's first major trophy after 70 years of existence. A year later, we did it again, as we retained the cup by beating Dundee at Dens Park, as Neil Forsyth pointed out in his Jousting with Jim article. The pitch was so frozen that Davy Dodds wore a pair of Adidas Sambas. Here's Paul Sturrock on how important it was to win that night. That was a game we had to win. <laughs> because any game I've ever played in, that was the one you had to win. Yeah. <laughs> Still alive. The next one with the league is probably the biggest one of the lot. Can you imagine what it would be like living in the town if we'd lost that game? I'm saying if we'd lost that one, I'm saying uh, you know, that we'd never lived it down. But, uh, you know, that, that game is comfortable. Then the final. They never really caused us any problems. We could have scored four or five others, I think. Round with the outside of his foot for Dodds. Les Barr covers it. Stunner coming across for it. This is what Stunner's good at. That's excellent play. Dodds with a chance. He's done it. 
Fifteen. Would Escobar? Let me. Yes. That's a header again. Brilliant save on the end. Paul Scott. Three nothing. A year later, back at Dens again for the uh, League Cup final against Dundee, which was a. Uh, you know, I was I was reporting on that, and this is how daft it was um, because. I was the, the reporter who followed United for the Sporting Post. There was a guy who did Dundee games, uh, Bert Young, who was, uh, he'd been an RAF bomber pilot during the Second World War. He was a Dundee fanatic. So uh, the question was, who's going to cover this uh, cup final game between United and Dundee? Is it going to be Craig or is it going to be the much older and you know widely respected journalist Bert Young? So what we did was, I did one half for the Sporting Post and he did the other one. And with different writing styles, I don't know what it must have looked like, but I don't suppose anybody reading it would have, would have, uh, would have cared that much. But United, um, it was a fairly comfortable win, that one. 1-0 uh, just before half-time, Davy Dodge scored it. Graham Payne had a great day. Uh, he really played well that day. And uh, he took the two corners that... Um, Paul Sturrock uh, got the, the, the next two goals. And just my, my earlier reference to Jim sort of not over-celebrating, I remember after the game, he was being interviewed on uh, for BBC Sports Scene by Archie McPherson, and they brought the cup out. So he was under the stand at Dens Park, and the cup had been filled with champagne. So Archie McPherson said, are you going to have a drink then, Jim? And Jim looked at the camera and said, uh, turn your eyes away, mother. <laughs> Jim was like almost couldn't enjoy himself, but that was his sense of humour. That was, you know, he was having a wee joke about himself. Two cup wins back to back. The players were on a high. The club was beginning to compete. But what did those wins mean to the fans? Tom Cairns tells us his story. As he's gone through the seventies and he's 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 established United back to being a, in fact, maybe for the first time a consistently top part of the league club. Uh, we're heading for for uh, we're in the Scottish Cup final in '74. Got the semi-finals in '78 uh, again. These were these were causes for celebration for us, for the people who have grown up not knowing United to be up anywhere. But by '79, you could see something happening. He had a quality of player because I know this program is about about Jim McLean. Jim fashioned everything. The players did it. The quality of the players that he was bringing in. And on occasions, bringing in and then punting was excellent. He knew a player, and he knew what a player wasn't. By '79, it was looking it was looking like you start to believe that maybe we can do something. Now we won nothing in our history, really, other than way back in Jimmy Brownlee's days, winning leagues in the, in the twenties and the thirty, uh, the lower leagues. But in, in my lifetime, and in the lifetime of most folk, we, we won nothing at all. And, and something about 79 told us. Now, I was at every League Cup match, home and away. And we got to the final against Aberdeen on the 8th of December, 79. I went to Hamden Park for a final of a cup. Dundee United in a final of a League Cup. I had been so excited when we got to the semi-final of the League Cup in 1964. I was a laddie. In fact, other than the relegations, the last time I cried was we lost an extra time to a cheating Rangers. but. There's no surprise there. But here we are in a final and we were rank. 
we should have been murdered. We were very, very poor. Then somebody with a bit of sense at the SFA, or the Scottish League, said, we'll play it at Dens Park. Brilliant idea. Dens Park has lots of good memories for us. I had lots of good memories at that time as well because we didn't do too badly there over my time since 1961. We played so well, we were the total opposite of what we were on the Saturday. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. We were world beaters, whereas on Saturday we were carpet beaters. A fantastic night. Naturally, it was Dundee and it rained, and we went to that park hoping, hoping for something. We left that park as winners of the Scottish League Cup. Now, I never dreamt we'd ever win anything. Do you know that? I don't think I dreamt we'd win anything. I think I maybe hoped we'd win something, but you never you never dreamt you'd win anything. The the match finished three nothing for United, as you know. Uh, we murdered them. It was a very heavy park. They presented the cup just down at, this, at the, what you'd call the tunnel, the steps, as it was at that time. It's a or the ramp as it is the steps now again. Park and ran round there. I had no thoughts of, of going away down to Tannadice to stand and look and see the players, etc. It didn't even occur to me. Uh, I, I stayed up in Hill Street. No, no, I was still in Pentland. I was still in Pentland Crescent at that time. Uh, and I had my car parked in Byron Street. You can even remember where I parked it. And I walked back to that car just at St. Peter and Paul's. And I was on air. I was on air. I was on air for weeks. But I was on air. And I went home and I had a cine camera and I tried to film the match from the highlights at night. I've still got it someplace uh, off the telly. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine at work who's blue nose to congratulate me. And I remember saying to him, his name's Harry Stewart. I said, Harry. I could die tomorrow, and I could have done. The next year, again, I was at most of the game, not all of them, but most of them. Uh, I was through at Hamden when we beat Queen's Park, and uh, I was working the night we played Celtic. Drew one all at Tannadice, I saw that game. And we had Celtic away in the second leg, and I was working that night, and I thought, up until the two days before, I'll not bother trying to get a swap of shift, but I did. One of the best decisions I ever made in my life. I got a swap. I went through to Celtic Park and that was pelting down rain again. There's a theme to this, you know. We'll probably mm-hmm. play better in the pouring rain. Right? So we took them to pieces. 3 nothing, going on 33 nothing. And I'd parked the car miles away from Celtic Park because when I parked initially, two wee lads came up and suggested that I gave them a fiver to look after my car. And and uh, I wasn't really fancying that. So a good walk. And I remember coming out of the match, again, walking on air. I'd found out that Dundee had beaten Air United, so it was a Dundee derby in the, in the final. But quite frankly, Dundee didn't scare us at all. Didn't scare us at all. And this Celtic supporter ambles up to me. Now, I'm not wearing colours. And he says, that goal was offside. And I says, which one? Was that the first day, the second day, or the third day? And then he went away. <laughs> and I got back in my car. And this is in the days before we had, maybe videos were out, but we didn't have a video. And I drove like the clappers to Perth to my cousin's house. 
And I went in and I saw most of the match in his house. To have won something the first time was fantastic. To win it, to win it again was magnificent. Uh, we were a top, a, a top club. We were a top club. We had very good directors. We had a great manager and coaches. And we had the best players. Despite the progress he had made, few believed that United were potential Premier Division champions as Alex Ferguson's Aberdeen at that time were an emerging force in addition to the old firm. In the 1981-82 UEFA Cup, United defeated AS Monaco and Borussia Mönchengladbach but were knocked out in the quarterfinals. At this time, McLean was also acting as assistant manager to Jock Steen with Scotland, including at the 1982 World Cup. By season 1982-83, Jim McLean had established United alongside the old firm in Aberdeen, but they had yet to finish higher than third in the league. And it appeared that they had missed another chance of winning the league championship in April. Tom Cairns takes us through his experience of the season. If we won our last four games, <laughs> this is Dundee United we're speaking about, remember, right? If we won our last four games, we would be champions, and it was 4 nothing against... Killy, I think it was, and then we went to Greenock, and, uh, and there's a guy called Jim Welsh who, I, who made my acquaintance when we were doing the displays. He'd written to, to Jim McLean and suggested that we paid for the buses to go through to Greenock and give us a real big support. So he went to the board and had a board meeting, and they decided they wouldn't pay for the buses, but they would actually buy tickets for the match. So you went to Tannadice and you got a ticket for nothing, the game. And he wrote back, I've got a copy of it, Jim wrote back to, this is, this is Jim McLean, you see, this is the side that no one hears of it. He wrote back to Jim Welsh and he said, you see what's happened now with the with the bus, uh, with the uh, the tickets for the match. I hope you're pleased with the outcome of your letter, you know. He didn't have to answer them, but he did. Anyway, we headed down to Dens. It was raining for a while. And I decided, I made a... Uh, a decision. We'll go in the stand underneath, and in the enclosure underneath the stand. Don't get in there now, right behind the dugouts, if you like, but nearer the nearer the the ramp for the players to come out. So we went in there. We were early, maybe before two o'clock, and it got packed. The whole ground was packed. I had a look to see, and according to the official figures, twenty nine thousand and sixteen. Now. It was a damn sight mare in 29,016. They were coming over the back wall at the TCK end, heading towards Thanedice at that end of the goal. TCK was a, a firm, and their name was on the on the roof, the roofings of their of their building. We, kind of where Radio T is now. And uh, <laughs> it was hoaching. It was really hoaching. And I don't remember nerves before the game. I must have had them. But I do remember the kickoff. My cousin Andrew gave me a polo mint. I didn't like mints, but I took a polo mint just to take my mind off it. And after about, what, I don't know, seven or eight minutes, and there's no point in describing the goals. I think everybody, everyone will have seen the goals. But Ralphie Chips, the Dundee goalkeeper, and in a manner that was... Well, I don't know if it was goal of the season, but certainly should have been goal of the season. It was just pure dead brilliant. <laughs> I spat the polo men out. I don't like them anyway, right? So <laughs> now we're dancing about, we're hugging each other, the five, well, the five of us. 
He says, do you want to pull them in again, right? We've kicked, they've kicked off, so took another pull them in. So we, we, we while after that, Davy Neri gets kicked in the box. Down he goes like an old wardrobe. Oh, in the name of God, right? A penalty at United, and I'm thinking, well, you know, this is it. We're not going to, we can't lose this. You know, it's Dundee we're playing, and, and, and two nothing would do it, you know? Well, Eamon took the penalty, goalie dives to his right and stops it. But right away, I mean, you didn't have a second to get disappointed. You didn't have a second. Wallop. Two nothing. Out goes the second polo, right? That was my last polo. In fact, it's the last time you ever, ever ate a polo. Because Maybe you should take them to the matches with me, actually. But I don't like mints. So, well, we're, we're, we're as happy as Larry. And then, no, I can't remember the timings, but the gist of it was that Davy Dodds, and he flicked a ball in and it hit. It was like the, the England goal in the World Cup final, except England got the goal against the Germans in 66. We didn't get the goal against uh, Dundee. I think it was over the line, but there's no that. You can't tell. And Dundee scored no long after that. Ian Ferguson, would you believe? The great Ian Ferguson. Now I was worried. Probably on, res- on reflection, I should have been eating polos, but I didn't. <laughs> well, honestly, half time. And the word is, I didn't have my, my trusted tranny. I always took a tranny to the match. Tranny being a small radio and not someone who was there for the company. And didn't have that with me that day. I don't think I would have heard what was said because it was really, really noisy, you know. We get word at half time it's because uh, Celtic were playing Rangers. Now, Celtic were really the only ones that we were in any way uh, challenged by, yeah. Aberdeen, but maybe just, maybe just slightly. Two nothing to Rangers at half time at Ibrox. Two nothing to United. It's fantastic. We're, we're coasting here, yeah? Oh, no, sorry, wasn't it two nothing? It was two one at half time. Two one, but we're, we're still, you know, we're, we're, we're in there. Now, I remember very little of the second half. Very little of it. You're looking at your watch all the time. Even if you'd have wanted to go to the toilet, which I did about 15 times at Hamden in 94, you couldn't do in that crowd, right? And the game's going on, and it's going on, and it's going on. And I didn't know at the time, because it hadn't happened at the time, but if you look back at the record books, Albert Kidd was playing that day for Dundee. Three years later, he decimated Hearts' hopes of winning the league at Dens. I was at that match as well. Uh, that could have happened to us. Yeah, and we, we maybe wouldn't be sitting here speaking about this. But he he didn't do it. The final whistle went. And I've seen a picture, we've all seen the picture of Jim sitting in the dugout. Walter Smith's patting him on the back. Luggy and Boney Riley are dashing out of the out of the dugout to go in the park to congratulate. If you haven't paid attention, have a look at that picture of Jim. He looks like Jock Steen did that fatal night when he died. Jim's in a trance. The strain. Imagine the strain that I was going through, that the fans were going through, the boys and girls that's listening to me just now. What about the strain that Jim McLean was going through? You didn't get shots like that very often. You know, you've got to take your chance. And I look at that and I think, thank goodness he was okay. 
And he got up and he, we were dancing about, but the way the crowd broke, he walked in front of us and he stopped. There was a policeman there and it's something happened, this thing I've seen on the telly where he threw somebody back out of the, out of the wall. And 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 then he, he went away. And that, that was Jim McLean. Jim McLean didn't start running about on the park, hugging them, doing what managers tend to do now. Uh, he didn't have that. That wasn't Jim McLean. And I think he was saying, right, that's it. Job done. I'm going to wait in here and leave them to do it. He did come out. Shy man. Very shy man. Uh, honestly, what a weekend. What a weekend. What a dream. A dream for me. But And I was only, was I at that time, 30 odd. What a dream for the, the guys that I know in the business club or, or the older supporters that were in their, in their 80s and whatever now. I'd watched them say 1923 and God, 1941 run the Cape, watched them for 1941. And, uh, what a dream. It truly is a fairy tale. That is Nettie playing in midfield today with Richard Goff in centre defence. Milne. Wriggles clear, might just get the chip, and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great goal! Looked as if he might be losing his balance, but he went for the chip, and he couldn't get a sweeter goal than that. Four minutes gone, 1-0. There's Scarragan, near he goes down, penalty kick. Bannon against Kelly. He saved it. That's it, though. The second. Fraser. Up come the blue shots. There's Sinclair trying to get in. Ferguson. He's done it. 2-1. If it is possible, I have my eyes on the referee. It's gone. That's it. The finish. United have done it for the first time in their history. The Scottish Premier Division champions, and there is a man who walked out of Dens Park, where he was coached down the road, and totally transformed the face of football in this city. In 2003, I did a documentary about the 20th anniversary of uh, United winning the league. So I kind of, I kind of revisited it. Um, at that point, looking back on it, and interviewed just about everybody who was involved in it, apart from Dave Neri, who wouldn't do well. I think he's done about one TV interview, but he's, he's just—I couldn't persuade him. I couldn't persuade him to do it. And that—that that was really interesting because it gave me an insight into the way the players felt about him. Um, and the, I think it was Morris Malpass who said they were. They were like, they were motivated in the sense of almost trying to prove Jim wrong, that he got in into them, in about them so often, they thought, we're going to show him. And that must have been only part of it because it was a tremendous team, a tremendous season. And I remember one of the, the pundits we had on it, uh, Jeremy McNee, who was a, quite a famous um, reporter for the Daily Express, and he went on, Scots for later in his life. Glasgow-based guy, normally you would think only interested in Rangers and Celtic. And he said just at the um, the end of 1982, uh, United beat Rangers, I think, at Tannerice. 
And he said, these guys could win the league. Lo and behold, they did at Dens Park. And I, I was there as a spectator again. Um, you know, the atmosphere was incredible. I'd be absolutely electric. God, sensational. I mean, absolutely sensational. And and yet when they went <laughs> they went back, they walked back down the road to Tannerise. I think it was John Riley was telling me, Boney, he'd scored a few goals that season. He wasn't one of the, the main players, but he scored a few goals. The the celebrations were sort of less than manic, because Jim said to them, Right, you're all turning up tomorrow. We've got a friendly against Forfar. God. You know. How about taking the shine off the, you, the, your most historic win? Something's probably unlikely to be ever be repeated, but that, that was him. The nucleus of the team had just, they'd all come through, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd lost one or two, but we'd, we'd gained one or two. Um, but it was still a nucleus of the same side that had had done well in the two previous years, you know, with the two cups, mm-hmm. you know. I never went. I never really went into a game worrying about a game or anything like that. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he just just went out and, and played. You know, it's an easy thing to say, but we did. You know, mm-hmm. we never went out and. I mean, being honest with you, the last the last ten minutes was was nerve wracking, and that was the only time I ever thought, Christ, we could win this. You know, and I kept shouting to the dugout. How long ago? How long ago? How long ago? And nobody was paying attention. They were all like, "Oh, get up with this!" And I'm like, How long ago? And I'm like, "Get the ball, we get it up the park, get it, get it, get it, get it away from me!" How long ago? How long ago? Like you know. And then I looked over, and at the side of the the the, the tunnel, when you come out of the the stand onto the pitch, there was this massive big frigging clock, and it had been there for years, been there for years. And after I'd seen it, I went. That's been here for years. It's a massive And I'm screaming at them. And I'm raging at nobody's looking at me to say, two minutes, three minutes, or get up here, whatever. I just get it away from me. Like, you know, and I see this clock and it was like, and uh, final whistle, it was like, whew, relief, you know. In the following season, David Dodds admitted his biggest ambition was to win the European Cup with Dundee United. And in 1984, he almost did. United reached the semi-final of the competition without losing a game or a goal at home. The opponents were Roma and the Italians were beaten 2-0 at Tannadice. John Holt was our guest on episode 24 and told us what it was like. The game against Ro- Roma was a it was a hard game. They were all hardy boys, the Italians. Mm-hmm. So they were, uh, when we beat them at Dens, uh, sorry, at Tannadice, when we beat them there, and then we had to go across to Roma, you know, I think their manager accused us of being on drugs. You know, I didn't care what a drug was yeah. at that time. You know, so but when we played across there, I mean, even after the game when they beat us, you know, coming off the pitch at the time, I was a subby at the time. I came on the last twenty minutes again, mm. and uh, we Jim got the finger pointed, yeah. up and it was like Watty was his guardian. Watty, Watty mm. Smith was sort of pushing some of the boys away, but even after the game when we got in the bus. We're going to stoned. We're mm. going to bus stoned. Aye. Yeah. My mother and father-in-law, they were at the game. They went across, but they were on sort of holiday as mm. well. So they took the game in at the time. And that's what Dave had said to me when he came back. He says, intimidating. Yeah. We were sitting, we were sitting away at the back. And he says, the fans were up. They were mm. throwing things on the bar. Yeah. In the 84-85 season, United were drawn to face Manchester United. It'd be the club's first visit to Old Trafford in a game that attracted a large tangerine following on a memorable occasion. People forget that in the, the, the 84-85 season, um, 
they were in the UEFA Cup and they played Man United at Old Trafford. And uh, when watching that game, United were absolutely magnificent. It was a it was a, a fast flowing, all out attacking game with loads of incident, and United more than held their own. In fact, uh, that, that that you know there was a lot said about United, how United's game was more suited to European football. They they exploited that to the full that night because they were breaking away at high speed and causing Man United's defence all sorts of problems. United get the match underway wearing a chain strip of white tops and black shorts. And a very big occasion indeed. Certainly a crowd in excess of 40 to 45,000 inside the stadium. So a very big test indeed for United. But their European experience in the past has been such that they should be able to cope with this. Eamon Bannon, one of the important players, taking a very heavy challenge there from Norman Whiteside. So the first free kick of the match is given by the Bulgarian referee. So Bannon has taken the knock. Appears to have recovered all right. The referee is Mr. Bogdan Dotchev of Bulgaria, the man who refereed the match in which Dundee United lost to Radnitsky Nish a couple of seasons ago. Free kick finding its way to Goff and Bailey takes it comfortably. But that must have been encouraging to United the way Goff got into the penalty area for the header. Obviously believes that Paul Sturrock isn't far enough back to obey the 10-yard rule. There's McQueen. Handled on the line, was it? Thumped in now and the referee has looked towards the linesman. Brian Robson put the ball in the net and there certainly appeared to be a hand used on the goal line. The corner kick coming in from Gordon Strachan. You see number five, Gordon McQueen, peeling off there to get his head to the ball. Mal passes on the line and clearly a two-handed save. So the penalty kick has been given. It'll be taken by Gordon Strachan. He'll be mindful of the fact that he scored one in each of his last three seasons for Aberdeen against Hamish McAlpine. So it's Strachan against McAlpine. And a perfect start for Manchester United, provided by Gordon Strachan. Falling in the opening 20 minutes. Free kick played towards Richard Goff. Header down, a first time shot! Paul Hegarty! Dundee United equalise after one minute of the second half in the most dramatic fashion. It came about simply Eamon Bannon's free kick, lofted to the far side. Richard Goff won the high ball, nodded it down, Paul Hegarty came in, the first time shot, and Bailey was beaten. Well, there they are from the normal angle. Good leap that by Richard Goff. A missed kick in the middle there by Alveston. And the shot with deadly accuracy makes it one apiece. Chance for Manchester United and Robson makes it 2-1. The prolific goal scorer Brian Robson for Manchester United in England. Hits back for the... English side, the ball breaking awkwardly as Hughes went for it. The first man there inevitably was Robson and McAlpine had no chance at all. A bit unlucky the way the ball broke through here for 
Robson and broke off BD, and that's when Robson's so deadly. Good pass into space for Dodds. Now BD breaking on the right. Sturrock is to the middle. Dodds is getting there too. That's beyond Duxbury there. Sturrock! Paul Sturrock makes it two apiece. And that really was Dundee United at their very best. Look at the quality of the ball from Stuart Beedy. Just evading the outstretched leg of Mike Duxbury. In came Sturrock, and there goes his 12th goal of the season. See the pass again from Beedy. Sturrock in it in a flash. The finishing was deadly. Well, that's the kind of creative play we've become accustomed to from Dundee United. Remember, it was set up way back in the run half between Richard Goff, Paul Hegarty and Davy Dodds before Beedy made the break on the right. So it really was a very high-quality goal. Paul Sturrock was the man who got it. And what a remarkable scoreline now, but surely is in favour of Dundee United. Well, what a dramatic finish that would have provided. Sturrock still not finished, though. He's won the corner kick. And it looks as though Dundee United are going out of this match in real style. What a great performance from Paul Sturrock in the second half. Left in his own as David Dodds is withdrawn into midfield to stifle Gordon Strachan and Brian Robson. And this corner kick is being taken in injury time. There's no more left. The final whistle blows and Dundee United have earned a draw with a performance in the second half which matches anything... The UEFA Cup campaign in season 86-87 began with wins over Lens. Craiova and Hadjuk split before Barcelona came calling. It's the first game that Neil Forsyth remembers attending. I think when you have experiences like that when you're when you're young, so I would have been ten, and it's just like seared on your memory, really. You know, I remember that night so well, and it's sort of really vivid in my memory because it was a sort of vivid scene. It was under the lights on Tanadice and then and then Barcelona, you know, and they're kind of famous strip and United in the Tangerine the crowd you know it's the most people I'd ever seen in my life um, it was just felt it felt like a, a kind of dream really you know and, it, and it, was, it was very special I was there with about probably about eight members of my family my granddad had got us all tickets and my, my uncle's a big United fan had come up from England just for it and you know we all my brother Alan was there who I'd then go to United Games with for, for, for decades and we all sat in this row in the main stand um, and it was just I remember the goal going in so clearly and because I just remember that moment before the sound hit you um, the shed this kind of sway of about 5,000 folk or whatever it was you know and, and and then just that sound hitting you and it was um, it was amazing it was absolutely fantastic and I remember little things like I remember Lunacher and Hughes walking off the pitch at the end and moaning clearly about the Spaniards and the team and um, and Venables and things and uh, yeah it's just when, some, when you experience something like that at that age I mean there's no way out after that you know <laughs> like, if I'd gone to see us lose to Hamilton or something it might have been a bit different but that was um, I was fully fully bought up after that point Ferguson coming back quickly to pick up the ball on the fence he got the free kick for handball and this is Polstock and that's played away by Moritalia 
Gallagher was hoping to get free on the right. But the United fans encouraged as the throw is quickly taken towards Thurrock. There's Gallagher. The perfect start for Dundee United. Ian Ferguson leads the celebrations. But the man who got the goal was young Kevin Gallagher. Look at this on the volley. Riding it beyond Zubizarreta into the far corner. And it's a dream start for United. Far from being overawed by the multi-millionaires from Barcelona, Jim McLean's men more than matched the illustrious Spanish side, who might only hold a single goal lead to take to Spain, but the fine first leg performance, which almost totally eclipsed Barcelona's twin strike force of Lineker and Hughes, gave considerable hopes of further progress. Paul Sturrock told us about Jim's team talk. I think Jim, Jim was at that time and realised over the years that you know he sometimes went in, in debt too far. You know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to stop him, you've got to do this, do that, do that. And your, your mind goes racing, you know, and all of a sudden, I think he realised that he had been a, a feature of uh, of putting worry into the team. And his team talk in both places were that. He put the balls out to me, Aaron Gallagher, uh, Raymond, you know, in the first place. He says, get the balls in and get, you know, get, get to the people who are running. Mm-hmm. The fun people, he says, fun people don't like people that are running them. Yeah. So that's all we did this, uh, the two games. You know, we just kept running it, whoever was in front of us. And uh, we got ourselves in good positions. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't they can handle that. They couldn't handle that at all. We make it exactly five minutes to have time. Jim singled me out as man of the match. There was a lot of good players, Jim Matt and Ali, you know, Dave Bowman, you know, uh, Ian Redford, mm-hmm. you know, people like that, Great Fergie players. and yeah. Dave Neri. And we were all there as a team. Mm-hmm. We all stuck together as a team and just it was brilliant. got on with it. After the Barcelona game, many said it was United's finest hour, 
Well, the performance to oust Borussia was the equal, if not the better, of the magical happenings in the Camp Nou. The Germans, who had been so confident after their draw at Tannadice, found the United defence in resolute mood with John Holt, who was in superb form. A fitting way to confirm Scotland's first ever representatives in the final of the UEFA Cup. Portugal, Jose Rosa dos Santos getting set to start the match, checking very carefully the crowds on the edge of the seat now as Borussia get the match underway. You know, you're not getting that early vital goal to get the crowd on you, you know, really behind you. And uh, United are doing a magnificent job. There's Bannon now with a chance for the cross. And Barovka very happy to turn that behind for United's first corner kick of the match. Close to half-time now, but a good piece of play on the United left with Bannon's cross turned behind. So it's a corner kick which will be taken by Paul Sturrock. And Neri has joined Paul Hegarty in the box. Oh. Camps beats it out. There's Bannon. The chance is yes. there's Ferguson. And Dundee United have scored. The goal stands. Jubilation for Ian Ferguson. The Bartlesburg Stadium is silenced apart from the clutch of Dundee United supporters who've gone wild behind Billy Thompson's goal. The corner kicks it up. Camps was not convincing beating it out. It was a fine header here by Eamon Bannon, getting up on the six-yard line, nodding it to Ferguson. A powerful header, front set, couldn't reach it, and United have taken the lead. So the United bench up as one man as that header from Ian Ferguson thundered into the net. A hopeful appeal for offside by Barovka, but clearly front set played them on. Ferguson's header, and what a dramatic... Finish to the first half. The only other side since then to do that was Inter Milan in 1972. And that shows how difficult it is for any side to get a result here in the Buckleberg Stadium. Here's Ian Redford. Inside the Sturrock. Sturrock is onside. There's Redford. And that's just inches away from the second goal for United. The bench rising as one once again. And a good move on the left, Redford and Sturrock. The 1-2, releasing Redford, he beat Camps with a shot, but the ball goes wide of the far post. He's first for the ball, losing the tackle, but it breaks now for Redford. And very calm Black. play from Redford. Redford is free, he's onside, he's a great chance for United. And Redford trying the long range but trying to lob the ball beyond Camps, who is well off his line. Sending over crosses with... Increasing regularity from the left flank for Borussia, and that's certainly an area of concern, I think, for Jim McLean on the United bench. Good tackle by Bannon, and that has been penalised. Now, that appeared to be a perfectly good tackle in Bruns. And ball starts going to be booked for putting the ball into the net. The referee thinks he was wasting time. The Redford tried to cross that ball, you know, and just give it away. Because at this stage of the game now, Joe, minutes ticking away. You just don't make any mistakes and when you've got that ball you keep it as long as possible and here's this referee who is, now what who is has the referee given he's given a free kick an indirect free kick inside the box well this is quite incredible i could not see what the infringement was and i can only suppose that he considered that there was time wasting or there was overstepping by billy thompson but this really is menacing now for the united what a chance this is 
for Borussia. Now, can United survive? So the ball is replaced by Billy Thompson, we think, after he picked it up. That's what offended the Portuguese referee. But this is a marvellous opportunity for Borussia. United desperate to survive this set piece. And the referee again is going to take action, and it's against Uwe Rahn. Well, this is eccentric also. So it's for wasting time, presumably, although I can't quite understand that, or for dissent complaining about the positioning of the wall, more likely. It's for not taking the kick when the referee told him to take it, actually. Well, Mr. Dos Santos becoming much more of a central figure in the action. Here it goes to Barocca, off the post. And dumped away from Ron, and there's Dave Bowman, and the United defence survives once again. Rebound is wasted by Borussia. Well, that really could be deemed to offset the shot from Ian Redford in the final minute of the first leg match at Tannadice. The performances justify that tonight. Outstanding in defence, superbly organised in midfield, and very dangerous on the break. Here's Kevin Gallagher, he's away from Herlofsson. Can he do it all by himself? He has Redford waiting in the middle. Here's Gallagher, now Redford, a great chance for United second. There's Redford, yes! The night of glory is completed by Ian Redford and Jim McLean celebrates Kevin Gallagher's coolness under pressure, setting it up for Redford. How about this for coolness at this stage in the match? There's a way past camps and the final whistle has gone. Dundee United are through to the UEFA Cup final. United lost the first leg in Sweden 1-0, which set up a week the Arabs will never forget. They would face St Mirren in the Scottish Cup final on the 16th of May, which Jim McLean said was an absolute utter disgrace in his book. Four days later, it was the second leg against Gothenburg. United making progress on the ground this time. And no free kick, that looked like obstruction. Here's a break on for Nilsson. Well, Sturrup was aggrieved. Here's Nielsen taking on Clark. And that's the goal which United were dreading. Leonard Nielsen, 22 minutes into the first half. And the last free kick taken shot to McAnally. Here's Malpass. Better play from United. Sturrup has freedom on the left. Here's Ian Ferguson. Well, you can't come much closer than that. Good recovery, though, by Ferguson. Good play on the touchline. Here's John Clark. Good play from Clark. And there's the equaliser. And that is a magnificent goal from John Clark. Now just look at this for quality striking. Turning away from his marker, the left foot shot, swerving away from Bernison, in off the post. And United are right back in the match. Mary looking for Clark. That's towards Gallagher. And it could be closer. The referee is checking with his bench. Gunder Bengtsson is on his feet. And there goes the final whistle. Relief for the Swedish bench. IFK Gothenburg have won the UEFA Cup. And you really can't take anything away from them. There's their supporters. Leonard Nielsen being hugged. The flags are waving. And the United flags also waving as the United players go to collect their losers' medals. So there's... Paul Sturrock, Billy Thompson going through, the United fans appreciating supreme efforts from Dundee United this season. They made such a contribution to the season, both in Europe and at home. 
And in the end, they finish up, sadly, with no winners' medals to show for all their efforts over 70 long matches. I've got to be fair, we didn't play well. I don't think it was there. The players are really, really honest. I think some of them were playing from memory, and I'm definitely not criticising because the players have been magnificent. What I feel sorry for is that we had to play them uh, at the time of the season when we really were uh, out on our feet. We've relied on too few for too long during the season. I remember watching it with Alan. Um, I don't know why we didn't go, we couldn't get tickets or something, but I remember being just really, really disappointed. And, you know, looking back, as a, as a United fan being really disappointed you didn't win a UEFA Cup final it kind of shows the the level we were at but it was um, yeah I, I, I remember I remember watching both legs um, but it was um, and then obviously St Mirren um, the same week so it was a it was a kind of strange end to the season really it was I think Barcelona was sort of the peak really the gala occasion of a European final turned out to be a disappointment from our point of view in terms of result, but not as a spectacle or as an advert for all the good things about the game. Nothing will take away from what was an unbelievable cup run that gave the United fans memories that will last forever. Here's Tom's experience of United in Europe in the 1980s. European football, European cup, but just European football in general. Uh, we'd been in Jerry Kerr, 1966 and uh, 1970. 69-70 season, I suppose. That was the famous times when we got the the, the 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 current champions in the first match. We always came across the champions, unbelievably. But, but with Jim's know-how, and as I said earlier, the consistency of his teams, uh, of his coaching, of his selection of players, of the way the players went about their job, we began to get used to being in Europe. And we qualified, I say we, Dundee United, qualified 14 consecutive seasons in Europe. It's phenomenal. It's It almost went unnoticed, you know, because you, you were expected to be in Europe. Sometimes you were in the Cup Winners' Cup as, as runners-up, because at that time you qualified. But mostly it was because of your league position. And our, our league position consistently, right the way through uh, the 80s in particular, uh, bettered almost every year. Some of, the, some of the European matches, all of the European matches were exciting because they were always night matches. We drew nil-nil in Liège. The next game was Rapid Vienna. And I talked Helen into going with the team that time, so we went over there with the team. That was the first time he spent any kind of wee bits of time with Jim McLean. And, uh, and on the other occasion that we went with the team, he did exactly the same. He came onto the supporters' bus. Normally there's a, a bus for the players and officials, and then there's the journalists and the fans that have gone. And the way Jim and the football club looked at it was that the fans who were travelling with the team were helping to finance that trip, yes, rather than them having to go on a scheduled flight uh, and he would come on the on the bus uh, as you go back maybe leaving that country or probably at, uh, at the airport the Glasgow airport and he would seriously and sincerely thank you very much for for, for supporting the club most decent man you know uh, he just 
don't know how to describe him. He's Jekyll and Hyde, but he, I mean, from what we were seeing of him, he was the most wonderful man. And he did everything for Dundee United, everything, and he did everything correctly for Dundee United for, for a very long time. I, I just don't know where we'd have been without Jim McLean. I truly don't. We went in, I should tell. We, we were, we were uh, it was a joy again. It was, it was a fantastic, a fantastic hotel. Uh, we were robbed in Neuchatel. Uh, we went to extra time. It was the first time, if not the only time, ever went to extra time in Europe. And he gave a goal. He was from over the border as well, just no far away from Neuchatel. He gave a goal, which was patently not with the TV evidence that we saw when we came back over the line. You know, you feel robbed, but uh, and that was us out of, of Europe. Uh, but uh, the European times with United... And again, it was building up. You got to your semi-final of the European Cup. Now, I didn't go to Roma because I, if I used my time up to go to Rome, then I wouldn't have had money to go to the final again in Rome. And I had to hope I'd more or less the day off rather than the money. So I didn't go there. I sat and watched it. It was an early afternoon kick-off. And we all know the story from Rome. They were a disgrace anyway. But we didn't play well. Didn't play well. But we were in the semi-finals of the European Cup. To have been in this in the European Cup, remember, from me crossing that Strathmartin Road and getting excited, we got to the semi-finals, the last four. You know, this is a team that 25 years before was third bottom of the second division in Scotland. You know, it's, it doesn't. It's a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale. Rags to riches, they called that book. You've never heard truer words in your entire life, rags to riches. And then, <laughs> naturally, we were in Europe the next season, and then naturally we're in Europe the next season, and then we find ourselves heading through. We're playing good sides. A lot of these teams, if you look at these draws nowadays, when you look at the UEFA Cup draw, or the Europa League draw, as it's called now, you look at that, I think we've played them. We've played them. We've played them. And some of these clubs come from cities with populations of three and four million people. This is Dundee we're talking about. This is a small city in Scotland, a lovely city in Scotland, but a small city in Scotland. Corner Shop. Remember he used to say that? Corner Shop Club, Dundee United. He was right. But we played so well. Again, it's down to him, down to his players, down to his staff, I suppose you've got to say. Great coaches. Coaches through the European times, Gordon Wallace and boys like that. Great, great coaches. Jimmy Bone, great coach. Doug Cowie, the European or UEFA Cup. We're going from round to round expecting to win. And really, honestly, we usually did. And we played away from home and we had a reputation and people still say this, you know, uh, if you're abroad in the city where you're from, you say Dundee, they say, ah, Dundee United. I've heard that story so many times, it's it's, it's incredible. Uh, for the UEFA Cup, Barcelona in particular vexes me greatly because I was, I was going to Barcelona and I was booked on the plane through United uh, and then the fans, some of them anyway, didn't pay up. And on the it was either the Sunday or the Monday. I got a phone call from Mrs. Lindsay, who was the secretary at the time, Helen Lindsay, to say that the plane's cancelled. 
and to expect a call from a man called Harry Hines, who was a travel agent in Glasgow. And he phoned me up and he said, I'm sorry, but he says, the plane can't go. There's uh, not enough people paid, although they booked. And I was gutted. I mean, and, and, and when, when, we, when we won in Barcelona, uh, I was delighted, but I was gutted I wasn't there. Because to be able to say you were in Barcelona would be just, oh, God, you know. Uh, it was on the telly. I'd fallen out with my wife. We weren't speaking. And when you're sitting on your own and your team's just beating Barcelona, you've got to speak to somebody. <laughs> so I bit the bullet and I went and spoke to her. She couldn't have given a toss, I have to tell you. She was ironing in the kitchen. She she didn't take me on, uh, but I was I was floating on air. I mean, it was you know the way the game went. You know you've seen it. You've seen all the highlights. I think we'd have accepted getting to the quarterfinals, to the semi-finals. But, but and years gone by, we'd have accepted that. But you, you, but then now, as you're growing older and you're growing more confident, and you're seeing how good our side is, Germans, why not? Borussia Mönchengladbach. Well, the first leg. When they came over here, they played well. They they, they came uh, not to lose and they didn't lose. And you had to feel we'd probably missed our chance. You know, team that gave always kept on giving when it was Jim McLean's team. And these guys went out there and remarkable. It was actually one of the most remarkable performances. I'm not saying it was any more remarkable than Barcelona, but I've read somewhere, and I can't get any proof of it, that Borussia Mönchengladbach hadn't lost at home for 17 seasons in Europe. I don't know if that's a fact, but prepare to believe it because they were in the European Cup and whatever else, they were a high, high standard. Uh, so they were a very good side. But we actually took them apart. And we apparently could have won by three or four goals. We won 2 0 in the end. And every four weeks or so, as a United supporter at that time, we were saying to ourselves, Jesus Christ Almighty, we're in the final now. We've got to the final of the UEFA Cup. The last two teams in the UEFA Cup in that year, and the year before, I think, there was no English teams in it. There were no English teams. They were banned because of the Heysel Stadium thing with uh, Liverpool. So so the BBC in England were following United as well. Uh, it, was just, it was just a dream. We lived the dream. We definitely lived the dream. Uh, I'm still living the dream because I'm able to go back to it. For the younger people who weren't there, oh, boys and girls, you miss yourself. Mm-hmm. But for for me, and for guys of my age, guys who went to school with me, guys that played football way up the park and whatever else, they saw that uh, uh, an absolute dream, a, a true and honest dream. We did another two or three years in Europe before things start to fade a wee bit, uh, but well, well remembered for our European exploits right throughout Scotland. A lot of the, a lot of fans, Celtic fans, Kelly fans, then Fermland fans, they all came over to Tannadice to watch these games. They were travelling to see Dundee United. Remarkable. Remarkable. You just couldn't write it. You couldn't make it up. 
you know, taking on Barcelona under Terry Venables at Tannadice, getting what was, you know, possibly a bit of a fluke goal by Kevin Gallagher, but not letting Barcelona score uh, when they had Gary Lineker and Mark Hughes up front. And Lineker had a great chance, I remember, and fluffed it. Um, and people thought, wow, what a result, fantastic. Um, but, you know, Barcelona are going to wipe the floor with them when they get over there. And as we all know, um, it was the other way about, basically. You know, a demoralised Barcelona by the end of the game, uh, United getting these these goals. I mean, it is, it is just fairy tale stuff, absolutely fantastic. And then, not only that, you then go and beat München Gladbach again, uh, beat them in the semi-final, um, and you're up against somebody you might fancy winning against. And unfortunately, I, you know, I think United just, that season, they just ran out of steam a wee bit. There is one set of cup runs where United came up short under Jim, the Hamden hoodoo of Scottish Cup finals. United lost six while I was in charge, the last of them being the family final as he faced off against brother Tommy's motherwell. And yes, Alan Main was fouled. The, the ones I particularly remember, the most frustrating ones, were the 1985 Cup final against Celtic and United took the lead. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And this is what I'm, you know, I was referring to earlier when I talked about the this will to win that Rangers and Celtic have got. They just kept on going, they kept on going, and they got a free kick outside the box, and Davy Proven bent in this amazing free kick. And then they kept on going. United fell away a wee bit, and uh, Frank McGarvey got the winner. So disappointing, because United played so well. And it was much the same in 1988. You know... Kevin Gallagher broke through. United were more than holding their own. Puts the ball in the net. And a few minutes after that, the ball goes across the six-yard box. Eamon Bannon headers it over the bar. That could have been 2 nothing, you know? And you think that, that, it's moments like that where United probably thought, oh, that would have won it. And Celtic are saying, that would have won it, but it hasn't. And now we're going to... And again, it just... I don't know what it was. Was it less of a will to win than the old firm have? With the, the support behind them? You know, sort of almost willing the ball to go into the net. Um, I just... I don't know if it was Jim. Um, but, you know, there's a, a wee thing that I'm thinking about from the 1991 Cup final against Motherwell which was one of the greatest games I've been at because it was so exciting, you know, 4-3. Brilliant game, dramatic. United so unlucky. Um, the first half, Freddie Van, van der Hoorn uh, took a free kick and I think it hit both posts. Mm. Hit one post, it rolled along the line and hit the other post, if I remember rightly. Um, but United, uh, Motherwell had a daft day. They probably played as well as they've ever played in the probably never played better. Everything they did went for them. Um, we would have thought when United equalised in the last minute with Darren Jackson, right, they're going to do it this time. But Jim McLean said after the game that he um, had agonised 
over whether he should play big Brian Welsh centre-half and he didn't play him and I think he regretted that and that was the kind of thing that made you wonder about was there a wee bit of uncertainty about the way United went out I don't know only the players who were playing there can tell you that but it was a kind of indication you know can can we actually get over this final hurdle which was the famous name for the, the fanzine at that time they just they just couldn't do it and it was so so disappointing the one I really remember vividly watching on TV I remember my brother got to go to and I don't think I did I think I must have been too young was the 80s the Celtic Cup final the uh, Gallagher scored and then uh, I remember I do remember it like, I remember Gallagher scoring and I remember Bannon missing a chance I think if that's right and then McAvenny scoring that. and the minute you, even at that age playing the old firm when they equalised you felt what was coming what was coming in a, the last minute and because I remember that being watching that and then going to the big one for me was the, the 91 cup final and that was that was just a really it was highs and lows within the day, definitely. But I think even now, that's the one that, for me, really kind of hurts because we were the, we were the better team. Not even not not on the day, just in, on paper, we were the better team, and that's very unusual for United in that run of lost finals. We were the underdog, and I think pretty much all of them. But the '91 game, I think they had Davy Cooper, and um, you know, a few. I don't know if Stevie Kirk and Dougie Arnett, people like that, maybe if they were still there. But we we. We should have just should have won it. That was just what that was one we really should have should have won. Um, I remember I was because by that point I was completely kind of hooked to United, and going going to every game um, with with my brother and others, and, and the build. I remember the build up to the game because we really felt we were, I don't know why, based on previous experiences, really felt we were going to win that final. And I remember even like the United did a thing at the the old Keeler Centre shop, and we did these T-shirts of the of the players and I got an Alan Main main man t-shirt that fell apart within days and I actually met <laughs> Alan Main a few years ago and I spoke to him at length about the substandard quality of that t-shirt but he was very clear that the stitching wasn't his responsibility but it was it was uh, that was a, yeah it was a, I kind of wrote, I wrote about that in the article and I wrote about Ali Maxwell who in my uh, mind was always incredibly dramatic play acting for the last 10 minutes because he got, I think John Clark went through him at a corner or something and he just, anytime the ball went near the box, he'd collapse. Um, and I've had quite a few messages from Motherwell fans pointing out that he actually ruptured his spleen, possibly more serious than I thought. From the highs of European adventures, cup wins and being champions to the so-called Hamden hoodoo, Jim McLean took us on an adventure that will probably never be repeated. United fan Gavin Lee sent us in his Jim McLean story. I was selected to be a ball boy for the UEFA Cup final. The day before the St Mirren Cup final, in a fit of overexcitement, I broke my arm playing football. I woke up in a daze in the DRI after getting an operation to fix it with a reporter from the Courier interviewing me. My first thought was, oh shit, I'm not going to get to the two cup finals. I got released on the Saturday with a huge stooky just in time to watch the St Mirren game on TV. It was too late to make it through to Hamden. Being a ball boy, I had no ticket for the Gothenburg game until the Monday when Mr. McLean got in touch with the school to say I would be a guest at the game. The result of which I was in the home changing room prior to the game getting my Stuckey signed by all the players. I kept the Stuckey for years after it was removed in a cupboard until my mum must have sneakily thrown it out. 
Of course, gutted we lost both the finals, but for Mr. McLean to take time out to allow me to attend the game in what must have been one of the busiest times of his career is incredible. It is a true measure of the man. A true gent. Fraser Lowe sent us in his Jim McLean story. 13th of January 1990. I was lucky enough to be mascot for this big game against Celtic. I remember being so excited as I arrived at Tandice with my folks. I was met at the reception and taken up to the first team dressing room where the players were already getting ready to head out for the warm-up. I was sat in the corner for 5-10 to ten minutes in awe, just soaking up what was going on around me when the door flung open and in walks wee Jim. He looks around the room and clocks me. He then just stands there looking at the players who look at him a bit bemused. First words he utters, bearing in mind it's the build-up to a big game, was to bark at Mo Malpass why he's not got me sitting next to him and introducing me to all the players. He then comes straight over to me, takes me around each player himself, so I've met them all. He made sure for the rest of the build-up to going out for a kick-off that I was involved in the dressing room and had an unforgettable experience. A true gent of a man who will forever be in our hearts. 1st of August, 1999. Pre-season at Tanadice. I'd just left school, managed to wangle a summer job working in the ticket office at Tanadice. Who'd have thought an 18-year-old could have been so delighted to land a £3 an hour job to pass away the summer? I was in Spence Anderson's office signing my summer contract. Yes, a diehard Arab sitting in the secretary's office signing a contract on United-headed paper. Stuff dreams are made of. His office was just down the corridor from Wee Jim's. Outside, the corridor reeked of the plush new carpet that Spence explained had just been laid the day before. It was a custom-made job with a big United crest, dotted every couple of steps. It looked and smelt magnificent. After signing the contract, Spence says, come with me, we'll get a photocopy of the contract so you can have a copy. We walk out of his office, along the corridor at the photocopier, which is stationed outside a cluster of offices in the hallway. Spence goes to copy the pages, only to find things out of ink. Without flinching, Spence grabs a new printer cartridge from the nearby drawer. As he goes to take out the big old torpedo-shaped one for the copier, it bursts open, splattering black powdery ink for about two metre all over his new carpet. You could see the panic on Spence's face. So he says, stay here and I'll go get the cleaners. I'm left standing there in the hall with this apocalypse in front of me when I hear the door at the end of the corridor open and out walks the chairman, Mr. Jim McLean. He wanders down with his head in some papers and gets to the printer in his ruined new carpet. You could see the utter amusement on his face as he stops, slowly looks up at this young kid standing in the hallway who's clearly in some way involved in this crime you could slowly see the realisation of what's happened, just registering and the rage building up inside him. As he started going red, he looked at me once, one more time and then yelled, Spence! As he strode off down the corridor. Amazingly, I never got sacked, but will never forget my own first-hand experience of wee Jim flipping his lid. To his credit, he once again showed his caring side as I would lunch in the staff canteen every day that summer where the players ate too, he came in on the first week, gave the players grief for not inviting me to eat with him, and I remember him saying, he's working in the ticket office, so as part of the club too. Forever a legend. Brian Orr also sent this in. My father-in-law-to-be was on the committee of the Tangerine Club, which is now Club 83 throughout the 1980s, and any time they had a function, Jim and Doris would always turn up, putting money behind the bar for the fans to enjoy their night. Not bad for a teetotaler. 
I've been a member of the Glenrothes Arabs since the 1980s, and as an out-of-town supporters club, we Jim would always make sure as many players attended our Player of the Year events as possible, many times turning up himself. To this day, I'm not sure what Walter Rojas and Victor Ferreira made of Mark Inch, but Walter won all our raffle prizes and was never seen again. Alex Anderson also had a Jim McLean story to share. His first one is myself, Scully and Stavi, followers home and away 70s and 80s. We begged, stole and borrowed to go see United in Monaco, having a camp in fields in the south of France. On the day of the game, we decided to meet the team bus arriving at the stadium. But en route, we found out by fellow Arabs that wine was only 10p a bottle at the local supermarket. So the bus was met by tanked up Arabs. We Jim came storming off the bus and tell us all to F off. Probably rightly so. Then in later years, the great man himself turned up at my dad's funeral when my family asked for a club rep to attend as my dad was a season ticket holder since the 60s. R.I.P. Jim, thanks for making my dreams come true. Jimmy Hogg here. When I started working for the club in 97, Mr McLean was still chairman at the time. And uh, I was cutting the pitch one day on one of those city doing rollers. And I was only starting out, so the lines were all over the place. And he came out shouting, saying, Hog, those lines are like a fucking dog pissing in the snow. Some man, like, some man, but you'll be missed. You'll be missed. Uncle Bill, um, so he he kind of lived around the corner in Bright Ferry, and I remember seeing him one day, and he was really excited because McLean had joined his bowling club, basically, and Albert Road and Bright Ferry. McLean had joined the bowling club, so this was just as Uncle Bill was just so very, you know, he couldn't believe it, and he'd always have an anecdote for us when we went, and something that Jim had told him, and by the game or whatever on Saturday, and then, and then he just stopped talking about McLean, and it became a very sensitive issue. And if we did say something, our aunt Sadie would sort of shush us or do some sort of gesture that we should maybe not not bring him up. And Uncle Bill just got quieter and quieter on the subject, and quite stressed. And basically, what had happened was. McLean had turned into an absolute nightmare member of the bowling club and he was having full-blown meltdowns uh, out in the greens when he didn't get decisions against them and apparently it was one memorable time where he started furiously shouting at the groundsman during a match because he thought the pitch hadn't been prepared properly and this poor old boy in his 80s was (laughs) sitting watching. So it, it just became an an admin nightmare for Uncle Bill because he was on the committee and he, um, yeah, just drove him to despair. And Uncle Bill, as I said in the piece, he was in the Second World War, but McLean really, really got to him. And he, um, he, he did all, yeah, he eventually got banned, he got banned from the club. And But McLean, the thing Uncle Bill, I always remember him saying, I put in the article was that Uncle Bill said to me, uh, he said that ultimately he just took McLean aside and he said, uh, Jim, why don't you just calm down? And I, Uncle Bill was so confused about why that wasn't an option available to McLean. Um, But he never did, of course. When you look at the league tables through the years, my God, I don't think Jim, well, say without any doubt, Jim McLean's team never, ever finished below Dundee in all these years, right the way through to 93 when he retired as manager. He was just phenomenal. He did such a job. He was a Jekyll and Hyde man. Everyone knows that, with us doing the displays at Canadise and the tours, we've heard so many great things about him. I've heard some terrible things about him. He was a nutter. He was a wonderful man. He was a he was he was a human being. <laughs> really, he was. But what he did for us 
through these years were phenomenal. No, I was I was just at school and I had to do a sort of project where I interviewed someone and I spoke to my uncle who knew him and um, he arranged for me to go up to Tanadice. So I went up one afternoon and um, so I was 15 or 16 maybe and um, school project and, I, and he kept me waiting and then he came up and he chatted to me a bit about my uncle and he sat me down in the boardroom and said, uh, right, it's like your questions. And I said, yeah, and I had this list and he said, so give it, give it, give it, give it to me. So I gave him it and he kind of read them and he kind of muttered away and scored half of them out, <laughs> passed it back. And even then, I remember one of the ones I did ask, he had a real go at me and just said that, well, that's just ridiculous. I can't remember what it was about. It was about the board investing in new players or something. And he castigated me for about 10 minutes. I thought I was going to start crying. Uh, but he was, that was what he was like. He was, you know, I had a few things like that. I sold programs at Tanadice when I was younger. And um, I remember one time me and one of the other program sellers, you'd get up really early. And once you'd filled up your bag and everything, you had a bit of time just to wander about the ground, which is brilliant. And we, me and this other boy were just wandering about and, we went into the home dressing room and we're standing there and we just said, uh, what the fuck are you two doing here? And we turned around <laughs> and it was McLean. And I near enough passed out and he uh, he said, right, you two come with me. And he took us upstairs and we th- I thought it was going into his office. I mean, I was like, we're only programmed here. We're going to get punted. But he, anyway, he took us into the boardroom and he said, well, if you're going to look at anything, look at this. And he talked to us around all the trophies and, Talked to us about the games and everything. It was, you know, amazing experience. I was still sort of suffering to breathe at that point after the and catching us. But he was, he was, yeah. There was little, but that's the thing about McLean, and it's been great. Like reading fans' memories of him, these little moments people have had with him, and he's, he kind of never really lets them down. He always comes up with something, whether he's unnecessarily angry or you know gives them a bit of information or does something brilliant for fans. I loved all that stuff about people talking about him visiting them in hospital and, and so on. That was really lovely. We have been lucky enough on this podcast to speak to various players who had played under Jim McLean at United. Here's some clips from when they were on. First up, from episode 46, is Andy Gray telling us about his one-to-one coaching with Jim and how good he was. Listen, at 19, anybody who's 19 and says they want to rest, uh, something's wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, if you're going up playing football every day, uh, every week, and, 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 and you know, I've never, got, I've never gone along with that. I mean, forty odd games was 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 a lot for a for a teenager, and all those boys were a lot of us boys were then. Um, it was a lot, and it was testimony, I think, to Jim's methods that we didn't feel tired. You know, we worked hard, but we worked sensibly. He never overworked us. Um, there was a lot of technical stuff with the ball, obviously. Um, he used to take me an awful lot, certainly that first season uh, and and the second season. He used to take me out into paradise on his own in an afternoon. You know, all the boys would be going down the street. Call or go for a bit of lunch, and he'd say to me, "Right, Andy, I'll see you back here at two o'clock." I'd be like, oh, fuck, no, "Come on, boss. Why, why me? Why me?" Well, that's what I said to you. Why me? Why you, Andy? Well, you because he saw something, yeah, and he, he thought he could nurture it, and he did. And he taught me so much out in that pitch on my own. Just him and I. He's such a good footballer, Jim. Remember as well himself, and he'd only just retired. He was only in his thirties when he was coaching at United, and you know he was a great passer and crosser of the ball. So I was getting wonderful uh, lessons from him about how to be a centre-forward, about movement, about attacking the ball, uh, how to create space for myself, appreciate the pass and how to lay it and when not. All these things that he spent hours with me and me thinking I was being punished. Actually, I wasn't being punished. I was actually getting something that no other player was getting. Yeah. You know, 
one-to-one coaching with, with, a, with a great coach. Um, so it was just invaluable for me. In that second season, we, we did loads of those sessions, loads of them. I, I think he was as good as you get. And I, I think he was ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an innovator. He, he, he had great knowledge of, of football. He was, his, his, his one fault probably was his temper. You know, you could lose it. I've seen him bring players to tears at half time in that dressing room. And I'm thinking, wow, I wouldn't like to be on the end of that. And, uh, you know, it was a bit like that. That would be the only thing, you know, he, he could lose it big time. But he was a winner. He wanted to win. He wanted to win. He hated getting beat. Um, but as I say, fantastic knowledge about the game. And with people like Walter Smith, you asked Walter about what would we tell you? He must have learned so much from working with Jim. So much. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was fantastic. I could not have asked for a better first coach than Jim McLean. Andy McLaren joined us on episode nine and played under Jim as a teenager. He told us about Jim turning up in Glasgow at training on a Thursday night, his mind games, and also how ahead of his time he was. Probably since his form when I'm probably about 85, 86. God, we're going back a, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, and around about that time, there was, there was there was a few teams wanted to sign me, but Dundee United had a, had a kind of a base in Glasgow. Um, where they used to train and Graham Livingston was the head scout through there so I said all through the 80s and 90s there was loads of boys come up for Glasgow we used to train Thursday night and um, we Jim used to come down and watch training the S form training you know you say that to people now and they don't believe it you know mm-hmm. it's like could you imagine I don't know Jose Mourinho turning up to watch the S forms or something yeah. you know so um, for 85, 86 round about assigned S forms um and run about that time I used to come and we used to come up and watch the games we used to come up to the European games you know like University Cryova and the Barcelona that, yeah. games and and, all, and I can remember staying off school because I'd just signed and I think we were watching University Cryova it was BBC 2 it's, it's amazing the things that stick in your head you know mm-hmm. but I kind of became a fan by that point you know because listen to the United were very successful you know yeah. and during the 80s it was always a time where Scottish football, you supported whatever team was in Europe, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of get away from that a bit, you know. But you'd Aberdeen beating Real Madrid, you'd Dundee United beating Barcelona, you'd Hearts beating uh, Bayern, Bayern Munich, Munich, you know. Mm-hmm. So you've Celtic beating Real Madrid, you know. So you'd all these great games, you know. Like, and, and, and you used to watch him and, and, and kind of aspire to, to be them, you know, because mm-hmm. you had all these. Or these great Scottish football players that you could look up to. Yeah, but I can remember going to their games. I'm a wee bit older than Ronnie, and uh, especially the European games when when you would come down early, there would always be like a schoolboys game on before well, them. That was, Did you ever play in any of them? I played. Ones? I played. I have played in a few of them. I, I played before the Barcelona game. The goalkeeper never turned up, and I went in goals. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they blew for half time, and I was actually just. I'd turned round by this point and was just looking at the shed, just watching all the crowd coming in, you know. The crowds were massive. Oh, it, was, it was brilliant, you know. Um, I played in a lot of them and they were, um, that was wee Jim's mind games, mm-hmm. you know, because there was a rule at the time that the, the, the opposing team could only get on 45 minutes before the game or, or whatever. So it kind of interfered with their warm-up. Oh, okay. So it was part of wee Jim's. So we would be on, I mean, I can remember coming off after the Barcelona game and Lineker and... Hughes and all these yeah. guys are walking by you and you're walking passing them in the tunnel you know so it's a th- I, it must have been 13, 14 you know it was, it was, it's amazing for the young guys as well you know because you're getting the, the, the crowds begin to come in and it's your first kind of 
your first experience of, of playing out there in front of your crowd as mm. well, you know. So as a 13, 14 year old kid, it was it was amazing, you know. But as I said, it was it was one of wee Jim's tactics yeah. as such, you know, to keep well, that's to interesting keep to hear that, that that was probably part of the reason. Well, that, that was a big reason. Yeah. You know, people used to think it was to, to get it but it was to keep the it was to keep the whole team off the park, to, <laughs> to, to, to interrupt their warm up or whatever, you know. So you talk about all the mind games you didn't play, that was that was just one of them, and you know, that was, it was it was brilliant, you know, yeah. because as I said it was you used to get teams and they'd be dying to go on the goalkeepers in that particular they'd be like warming up on the track and stuff and we would be we would be on the park you know yeah. um, and, and you, it's you're not even a goalkeeper no <laughs> as I say I don't think I was to play I think it was like an under 13 game that night and I, mm. I was coming up just to, for the game I mean I was at the Gothenburg game and all the games but I was coming up for the game and the goalkeeper gets stuck in traffic because I think there was people coming for Scotland to, mm. to, to watch the Barcelona game that night and uh, so I end up, I end up in goals. I think I, keep, I think I kept a clean sheet as well. Right? So <laughs> we were doing, did you talk about sports science and all that? We were doing that 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. I can remember people coming in and to measure all our food and what we were eating. And I, I, I was convinced it was so we could check up what you were drinking at the weekend. Because <laughs> we had a big meeting and it was, whatever you're drinking, just put it down because it's, it's really important. I'm thinking, no chance of my putting down I'm at the weekend. I was putting down like three cans of Budweiser and that. <laughs> used to have that on the way down the road, you know, but... Um, but no, he was like all the um, sprint, sprint training, and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we also had psychologists, and that was another good one. Um, and she's right, we've got a psychologist coming in. Everybody's to go. Um, so we all went, um, and we went to get our wages at the end of the week, and there was thirty, forty quid out of them. I'm saying, but no, that was to pay for the psychologist. I'm saying, nobody knew it. We didn't know. You know, you didn't know we're having to pay for it. I went. If, you know, if the option was, right, you go and you I, pay 30 or 30 bucks. 40 quid. There's a lot of money then, you know, and you're going to get your wages, they're 30, 40. And they'd done it with everybody. And so the boys were in seeing him and he says, oh, if, you'd have, if you didn't have to pay, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have took it in or something. I'm like, you know, we're going Brian Welsh was another of the young players who was given a chance by Jim McLean. He was our guest on episode 56 and begins by telling us about one of the infamous McLean contracts. Oh, fucking unbelievable, yeah. So you sign, I think you're just in the door, he gives you a, a three-year or a four-year option and a four-year or a three-year option, which at the time, the option seems like it's your option, you know, but it's not a three-year option. <laughs> no, I like it. Uh, so it's basically a seven-year contract and you get a grand for it and he puts it in or he asks you if you want to put this grand in a, a pension, you know, so you put, you put the grand in a pension. Then you realise quickly you're, um, when you're doing well or whatever and you, you've maybe been there six months and you're skin. So he comes in with a fucking an extra four years for five grand. So <laughs> there you go. You sign that one. And then you're sitting on an 11-year contract, you know? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, we were all terrified, the wee man, and, and stuff like that. But, I mean, like, what are you... Like, I joined 85 full-time. What he used to take me out every afternoon and work in my head and, um, when he was still there. Um, just an education, you know? And, and, like, I remember going to play at Lookers, RAF Lookers, and playing centre-back with... I think it was why I was playing back with why you know. <laughs> so he's he's walking you through the game, and you're learning your your position and, and stuff like that, you know. So 
Um, that, I, I mean, like, it was, a, it was a hard school, but the education, like the football, watch this, they keep saying soccer, by the way, but the, the football education was, was unbelievable. I mean, we Germans are freaking genius, you know, <laughs> just a genius. Everything was dead simple, um, but, you know, it, it made it simple, you know. Craig Brewster was released by United, then signed by Ivan Golak, while Jim was the chairman. On episode 52, he told us about re-signing for the club from Wraith Rovers. Well, what happened was uh, my contract had, had uh, come to an end at Wraith. I'd signed for two years. And so I was six and a half years at Forfar part-time, and I was two years at Wraith, but I was a year and a half part-time. So it was the last six months I went full-time. Mm-hmm. So, and suddenly when I went full-time, I suddenly looked forward to going to training instead of working all day and, and, and training two, three nights a week. My outlook changed. and uh, But I, I had an absolute brilliant two years at race. You know, under, working under Jimmy Nick, he was really good and, and the players we had were a good team. So we got promoted to the Premier League in the second year. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Jimmy was desperate to keep me. So, and, and Hearts had come in, Nicky Clark's dad, Sandy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Sandy was keen to sign me. But Hearts were scared to go to tribunal with the, the old uh, chairman, Wallace Mercer. So, uh, one Saturday morning, I had the, the sports shop in uh, Muirhead. My mum mm-hmm. owned the post office and I rented the the front shop. So one Saturday morning, he comes in, uh, sticks his head round the door and he goes, don't fucking sign. (laughs) (laughs) And and turns and walks out the door. Excuse the the language, but for, uh, (laughs) he walks, he, he opens the door, says that, walks back outside. So I go outside, he went, don't sign. We're really keen. So then, then I'd, I'd uh, obviously I was excited, really excited. Personally, I think it's things that you kind of take in in your formative years, that sort of 10, 11, 12, in your teenage years, anything that kind of gets a grip of you at that age, it never leaves you. You know, and I think, I think that's what's maybe happened with myself and so many others with, with Jim McLean is that he represents so much to us that maybe we didn't realise and maybe even his death kind of caught us on the hop a little bit because I think he sort of, it, it, it's not just those, for me, not just those great memories of watching United, but it's its more than that. He's sort of woven up with memories of family, some of whom are still with us, some of who, who aren't childhood friends, you know, which is very specific kind of intense friendship and just growing up, growing up in, in you know, having a brilliant childhood in Dundee and in, in, in a city that you're, you're proud of being it from, in a big part, because of what Jim McLean did with that football club and what he achieved with it. And I think that it's a, a great thing to have a football team in your life, and especially when you're younger. I think it teaches you a lot about perseverance and success and failure and loyalty and everything else. And I, I just think we're very lucky, those of us who coincided with the McLean era, to have had Jim McLean's Dundee United in our life. And I, I just look back in absolute gratitude for that. The word legend gets branded about too easily in football. He's a legendary manager and he uh, 
was up there with Jock Steen and Alec Ferguson. And any of the players, uh, I'm sure all, any of them that I've spoken to um, have said that in terms of his tactical nous, um, his coaching ability, he was second to none. Uh, he probably failed um, in terms of how he handled individuals. But, you know, he, given the resources that he had, I would say was probably uh, the best manager that Scotland has ever produced. And, you know, people might say, well, you're, you're being um, a wee bit sentimental or emotional about that. But when you think about it, you know, the, the corner shot analogy was made. Um, probably what Fergie had at Aberdeen, there was probably a bit more money um, behind him. When you think about what Jim achieved consistently over the years, it's absolutely remarkable. One of the McLean memories that I really makes me laugh thinking about it was up in Huntley at the Scottish Cup game. He was chairman at the time and we went up and it was one of these it was these classic things where everyone reckoned it was about two hours to Huntley and it was about six or something, but it was a, and it was one of the most inebriated Dundee United supports I've had the uh, honour of being part of by the time we got up there. And uh, anyway, I just remember being behind the goal and and the boys were just all over the shop. And anyway, the, 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 the um, advertising boards fell down because people were sort of pressing against it, pissing about. This was at halftime, I think. And everyone was just sort of having a laugh. And, and, and then from nowhere, McLean just came striding over the pitch. And it was like it was like a bunch of kids and the headmaster came into the classroom and grown men are sort of panicking and trying to get this advertising board up and apologising. And he stood there and gave this proper sort of telling off, waggling his, his finger. And it just uh, oh, it just makes me laugh a lot. I wish I just wish there'd been a video of what he was uh what he was berating an entire United support with the day, but he was he was just brilliant. He was just you know the times when you saw him around as a kid, your your heart was racing. You know he was just that kind of figure, this kind of iconic iconic figure, and it's um, you know he's what, what what achievements he made, and it's kind of the further I think the further you get away from those achievements and look back, the most the more incredible you realise that they were. You know at the time a lot of that felt normal. And it only becomes more abnormal the further we get away from it and, and look back. So, yeah, great, great memories to have. While still in his role as manager, McLean was made director in 1984 and became club chairman in 1988. Staying on at boardroom level, he retired as manager in 1993 after an incredible 21 years and seven months in the hot seat. A statue of the club's most successful manager will stand tall outside of Tarandyce soon and Jim will be holding the Scottish Premier Division trophy in his hands. Inducted into the Scottish Football Hall of Fame in 2005, it is so sad that Jim's illness robbed him of the wonderful memories he created for a generation of Arabs. As fans, he turned our wildest dreams into reality, and we will never see his like again. Inducted into the Dundee United Hall of Fame in 2015, he brought so much joy to every supporter, is cherished by the United family the world over, and he will be sorely missed by us all. Last time I saw Jim was uh, at his induction into the Hall of Fame uh, at the Invercars Hotel. I think it was 2015. Doris brought Jim along. Uh, he wasn't himself, obviously. He was sitting in the next row of tables to me. Uh, 
they did the award early because I don't think he was, well, I know he wasn't so well. Uh, the fans were chanting, and you know the chant, Jim McLean, Jim McLean, Jim McLean, and it gets louder and it gets louder, Jim McLean, Jim McLean. He went up, and I don't know how much Jim knew of it. After that, there was the roar. He went back, he sat down at his seat. His, his, his wife was there. They didn't stay much more than, than a few minutes, and they rose, and they walked, and they walked behind me. I was I was sitting at the wall, if you like, near the wall, and they walked behind me, and the shout started again. Jim McLean, Jim McLean, and it reached a crescendo. And he walked towards the back of the ballroom, and he walked out of the door. He raised his hand, I think, at, at Doris's behest, and he walked away. And I think everyone in the hall knew there we won't see Jim again. And I never did. Wonderful man. Jim McLean represents a different time, a time of permanence, a time when, for an entire childhood and teenage years, your football club could have one manager. Time passed slowly under McLean. Seasons came and went as he stood glowering at the side of the pitch, feathering the, re- the nest of his legend. For my generation, his impact was formative. He was how we saw football. He was how we saw manhood. And the game doesn't make men like that anymore. There isn't the time. Jim, asked my Uncle Bill, why don't you just calm down? He couldn't calm down because he was a coiled spring of hunger and anger and determination who rose in the morning wounded and seeking revenge. And his revenge was to take a provincial football club and drag them to domestic glory and on to impossible foreign adventures. His revenge was to give an odd set of supporters a catalogue of experiences that would mark heavily upon their lives. He taught us to fight against the natural order. He taught us that the world, that vast, murky, unknown pre-internet world was not to be feared but to be invaded and conquered he taught us that our club mattered that our city mattered that we mattered I'm so glad that he didn't calm down I'm so glad that he raged and fought and scrapped and roused a band of men into feet so far beyond them and I hope it didn't cost him too much I hope it didn't contribute to where he was and I hope that Jim McLean remembered as he sat where he sat, with his memory being steadily frayed. I hope that he remembered who he is. I hope that he remembered what he did. And I hope that he knew that he was a hero. Like all men, he was many things, but Jim McLean was a hero. Jim McLean, 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 Jim McLean,